Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. And welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So I have to admit, I am so happy. Today has been like a podcast day where we record multiple podcasts on the same day. And it's just such a pleasure and a privilege. And I feel so incredibly lucky to have the conversations that I do. So I really appreciate you guys listening. Today it is my absolute pleasure to bring back to you Neil Moda. So Neil Moda has been on the podcast before. If you check out episode 205, I wanted to bring Neil back because Neil is part of the best practice lineup and he is chairing the GP clinical theatre. I also often find myself talking about Neil Moda and his approach to leadership and his approach to taking risk. Just the amazing things that he's doing in his community as an example of best practice. So it's an absolute pleasure to speak to him. In this podcast episode, we cover so much and just have a really good chat about leadership, reflection, how Neil manages feedback, his approach to long-term planning. Neil also shares that his practice has gone from co-owning a pharmacy to full ownership of a pharmacy and talks about the process to developing that service and the innovation and technology he's brought into that part of the practice. And at the very beginning, Neil gives us a tip to any of you that find yourself chairing at conference or hosting a meeting or even just networking, how to manage and how to approach those conversations. So I just loved it. I know you will too. And as always, the only thing we ever ask is that you share it. And I will see you in the next episode. Hey, Neil, thank you so much for joining me today again on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm really well, Tara. Thank you for inviting me back. I'm really looking forward to it. My pleasure. Your podcast was actually one of my favourites. In the last podcast, you spoke about how you've got quite a high tolerance for risk and that you're happy to just kind of go for it. It really has reminded me. And I think my tolerance is slowly getting, <laughs> slowly getting bigger yeah. because I have got a track record and sometimes I forget that. Absolutely. I think getting that balance right and that balance for me has changed over the time of my career. So I think kind of at this spot in my career, I am looking at different opportunities and taking different bits of risk, definitely. So could you remind our listeners who you are and what you do? My name is Dr. Neil Moda. I'm a GP at Thistlemore Medical Centre in Peterborough. So I do that kind of about two thirds of the week. As part of that, I'm a GP trainer and I guess I'm like the managing partner. So I kind of help with HR and business decisions and strategy. 
The other roles that I do is that I'm a chair of a GP federation, which is called Greater Peterborough Network, and that's across Peterborough and the local area. I'm also the North Place based chair, so I work closely with hospitals, community providers, voluntary sector to try and kind of, I guess, integrate, join up the NHS. And then, yeah, just recently, I've been made a deputy lieutenant to the King. So I, I try my best to represent King Charles and I'm uh, <laughs> uh, happy to chat to you about that. And I guess my passion is kind of really thinking about how, I guess, not the doom and gloom of the NHS, but the positivity. Where, where are we going to take the NHS in the next year, five years, 10 years? And how can that be positive? And also, from a selfish point of view, I think general practice is a great job and I want to make it positive for all the people within it. So on that note, do you think you're too positive? Because I was just saying that I delivered a presentation. It was to the Association of Medical Accountants of all places, but I started to use a slide more and more and more. And it's to showcase best practice. And lots of people, it's very understandable that it is hard. But I point to you and a few other people that are, despite the challenges, are managing to see progress. Do you feel that it's hard to maintain that positivity? No, I think probably knowing myself and my personality, I guess I kind of need to be positive. I think if I was working in an environment where I felt negative and the leadership around me was negative, I don't think it would work for me. And I guess for me, it's as simple as I boil it down to the key ingredients of the job. And the key ingredients of general practice is we've got the ability to talk to people about their problems and try and help them. And actually, there aren't many better jobs than that, really. I think, Tara, you know me that my parents are both GPs, you know, are such fans of general practice. It's been really good for them. The things that they've achieved are amazing. I think that positivity just comes through that as well. And you're chairing one of the theatres at Best Practice. What keeps you going back to Best Practice? It's like a tongue twister. You see, I tend to do it kind of once or twice a year. And I really like meeting people from up and down the country. I think it takes us out of you know, not just our professional silo, but our geographical silo into kind of meeting good people such as yourself, such as, you know, some of the other sort of GP colleagues that we frequently do this together. And then I think it also makes me think differently. So I think the last time I did it, I did the primary care network transformation zone, which I think you're doing. I did day one and then you did day two. That's right. And I, I yeah. love that because I learned so much of good stuff. And I was there chairing the room while scribbling notes because there were loads of things that I then took back to the practice and the PCN to think about, you know, different things. This time I'm doing a clinical room and, so, and I kind of like having that switch up. That kind of talks to me a bit about kind of what are the innovations in GP clinical practice and things like that. You know, what's being done differently? What are the opportunities? Where are things going? And I think it's a really good opportunity to, I guess, get a bit of professional development, meet some people, have a day out of practice, kind of thinking about different things. How do you prepare to chair the theatre? I did it for the first time last time. At QRX were like first up. And I just forgot everybody's name on the panel, even though I was looking at it. I definitely would say as each year goes by, I get worse at remembering names. And so I have that problem as well. I just keep the sheet in front of me for the names. What I try and think about is what are the talks about? What's my connection to that subject? Do I have any personal experience to that that I can kind of throw into, kind of, you know, or is there learning for me? Is this something I've never heard about? And almost like try and give it a bit of kind of personal kind of like, well, this is my learning from it and then open it up to the audience to think. So I think one thing that I'm really passionate about is that the sessions are interactive. So I always try and talk to the people coming to talk to say, look, can we keep some time for questions and conversation? Because actually sometimes just talking and people just listening is quite passive. Whereas when it becomes about conversation about what people are going to do differently or what their reflections were, 
then I think it's far more interesting and entertaining for the audience, the person giving the speech, and certainly for me as chairing the panel. So I asked you before we press record, what exciting projects have you got going on? And you've got loads. Most people are like, oh, just this, just that. You've like taken on a new business. In our medical centre, and again, I won't go through all of the history, but, you know, my mum started it, 700 patients, single terraced house, 30 years ago now. So in 1994, 2024 will be the 30 year anniversary. You know, taking it to 30,000 patients with a pharmacy on site, with endoscopy facilities, serving a challenged and deprived population in inner city Peterborough, 80% of them who don't speak English. So that's the population that we look after. And we're often thinking about how do we continue to innovate, develop. So we don't want that to be the end of the story. These are all chapters in a book. And so, you know, thinking about what are our next chapters. For the last, I think, 10 years, we've co-owned the pharmacy. But if we're honest, although we co-owned it, we didn't really have much to do with the runnings of it or the opportunities of working together. And so since November, we've taken on full ownership of the pharmacy. And I guess that's coincided with a time when the NHS is under strain and struggles and, and, and problems. And so actually, we're trying to think about how do we stabilise that pharmacy and make it future-proof? So we've brought in loads of technology in there. So we've got kind of system one. We're a pilot for having system one, having a shared record between general practice and the pharmacy. We've brought in kind of these machines that are like Amazon lockers. People can pick up their medicines on the evening and the weekends because a lot of our patients are shift workers. And we've brought in, I guess, one of the fanciest robots. We named after Amanda Doyle. So Amanda Doyle came and opened uh, Amanda the robot. <laughs> Claire Fuller was meant to, but then she was a bit late. So she turned up late. So the the robot didn't get called after Claire. So it's named after Amanda. And that robot's capable of dispensing, I guess, twice the script volume that we currently deal with. And the hope is that as a robot and technology does a bit more of the getting hold of medicines, dispensing them, as technology helps serve people to pick up their medicines, then the workforce within the pharmacy can have much more meaningful interactions. If someone is diabetic, they can talk to them about the diabetes, their devices, the medicines. They can do blood pressure checks. They can swab the sore throats. I guess we're kind of applying our learning from running a general practice into thinking about how that could work with community pharmacy. And I think the sweet spot for me is rather than competing with each other, if we're all part of that same pathway, thinking how we best use our workforce, then we can get some real benefit. So we've kind of moved a lot of minor activity that we're kind of using our nurses and things like that in general practice over to the pharmacy as first port of call. And so that's helped our capacity in the general practice. I'm in Whitstable. Three pharmacies have closed, which has resulted in like security having to be at Tesco because the queue is so long. So could you help our listeners? We hear these stories on the news, like what is the impact on a community when a pharmacy closes or is not stable? What's the knock-on effect to general practice and those patients? It's awful, isn't it? The organisation that you turn to for much-needed medicine suddenly disappears. A lot of these things then go to online pharmacies, but it's not the same. Like, you know, actually, if you need an antibiotic, how quickly often will your online provider then provide you with the antibiotic that you need? For lots of our patients, you know, I'd hold my hand up to say during the pandemic, general practice, a lot of it had its doors closed for a period of time, which was right because we had to separate out COVID type infections from other things. Whereas, you know, a lot of my community pharmacy colleagues had their doors open. You know, people would still walk into the community pharmacy to pick up over the counter things, to pick up their medicines, to get, you know, medicines for coughs and colds and things like that. So I think as soon as organisations that people turn to close, it has a massive effect on them. 
As soon as you lose the quantity of providers, it often can decrease competition, choice, success, because actually incumbent providers like Tesco, for example, in the example that you give, don't have to provide an excellent service to grow their business. They're just there. So people go to them. You know, whereas actually when you've got a, a little bit of competition, it does often drive up the quality of, of services as well. So, yeah, I think it is, it is absolutely devastating. So I think one of the other opportunities that we've seen is that actually we're a training practice as a GP centre. We now train people across the GP centre and the pharmacy. And so people rotate around both. And so that really helps communication, build up relationships and things like that. We've got four pharmacy technicians, which, as you know, is part of the ARS scheme for funding workforce. We've got four in development through HEE funding. Their complete salary pretty much is covered through that. And then at the end of it, they become pharmacy techs, which are then useful for both the general practice and the pharmacy. So you can see how you can use it to develop your future workforce as well. I love that. Okay, what else have you got going on? <laughs> so it has been a journey because when we started, probably a bit like Tesco, we had our security. You know, it wasn't all glossy and lovely. And, you know, back to this positivity, like, you know, actually at points in my career, I have pride. And that was one of them, you know, is actually we felt that we'd let people down. We'd taken over this pharmacy. We weren't doing a good job at running Graham Young's. And actually we needed to pull up our socks and sort some stuff out. What it was really dependent on was not really the management capacity that was there, but it was the workforce. And obviously, as you recruit workforce, people have got notice periods and time. So you can't just suddenly revolutionize a service overnight. It's taken six months of working really hard to bring in workforce, to bring in technology, to bring in innovations to get it to where it should be. So since we last have spoken together... I think that's probably the thing that's been the most challenging. It's brought tears to the eye. It's brought security to to the door. But now when we sit back at it, we can be really, really amazingly happy about the journey that we've been on because it's a real positive story at the moment. As a business owner, managing partner, and you've got like a portfolio role, what did you have to drop or push to the side to be able to focus on the pharmacy? Or did you not? Did other members of your team focus on the pharmacy? really good question so we identified that in a way our focus had to change so our burning fire was the pharmacy and so kind of a lot of our leadership resource focus changed to focus on sorting out the pharmacy sorting out the workforce and things like that I didn't necessarily stop doing things but I kind of changed the focus that I was giving to focus much more on the community pharmacy and now things are, are much better than they were that focus is starting to go back then to the balance that I had before Hi everyone, this podcast is brought to you in partnership with Best Practice, where we will be interviewing some of the speakers and sponsors attending the event in Birmingham on the 11th and 12th of October. If you are already registered to attend, do let us know as we would love to meet you. And if you are still to register your place, please click on the link in the show notes. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. Let's go to the Deputy Lieutenant. So as I said to you before, Tara, as a six foot four, you know, Asian gentleman representing King Charles, I think sometimes phenotypically can look a bit different. But I was really honoured to be asked to kind of be one of his representatives in Cambridge and Peterborough. And I guess, you know, like many times in my life, when I get asked to do things, I don't actually know exactly what it means. So some people often say to me, what does that mean? What does your role kind of consist of? And at the time, I didn't really know. 
But, you know, what I heard from it was that the role kind of encompassed almost the values of, I think, what's really positive about the royal family. So thinking about things like charity, voluntary sectors, doing good for the population, finding the people that do the best things for the community and celebrating them and encouraging others to do that, making connections with people across different sectors like the police fire, voluntary sector, civil service and things like that, and bringing together people to champion what's going on. So I guess that's the kind of the nub of what I'd heard about it. What has happened so far in the role, I guess, was on the coronation. I had a lovely day where I went over to a homeless project, the Light Project, the Garden House, which is in Peterborough. And that's a service that kind of looks after homeless people and provides food. It was showing the the coronation. People were coming in and out, looking at it and experiencing that together with them, talking to the staff that's in that organisation. And I guess reading out a telegram from the king about how important the work is and stuff like that. So I think, you know, kind of making those kind of connections with services and really, I guess, seeing the smiles on people's faces. I'm sure some of the uh, the people that use that service aren't the biggest royalists in the country, but it often just kind of lifts people up and it gets people talking with each other. And actually, I guess putting it back to my other roles, we're making connections like that because in some of my place-based roles, in some of my federation roles, there is funding being put in for homeless bus. Now, I don't know why it's a bus because I don't think it needs to travel much because I think it's going to be parked pretty much most of the time. But I guess it's a facility that's going to have some health facilities. It's going to have some kind of health checks and things like that. It's going to have the opportunity to smear tests. It's going to have the opportunity to help people stop smoking. You can kind of see how all of these things kind of overlap together. And I guess that's how I make it work. I look for the commonality, although they're very different roles and different opportunities. But I think by occupying some of these things, I can bring it all together, basically. And so that's where I look for getting achievements in those areas. Do you have brothers and sisters? I don't know. I'm an only child. You say your mum's got an MBE or an OBE? Yes, my mum got an MBE. Now you're deputy lieutenant. Have you got kids? I do have two girls. Yeah, two girls. Gosh, like the expectation's high. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I use it as fuel, okay? My mum got an MBE. What am I going to do? Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, and I say the same to my my kids can do whatever they want. You know, currently they both want to be singers. Haven't heard them. They've got a way to go, I'd say. (laughs) You know, we will support them to do whatever they want and whatever they're special and good at. But I think it's having that passion, isn't it? Coming from a migrant family, I'm second generation. It's quite easy for me to rest on my laurels and things like that. But actually, for me, I just use it as burning fuel to encourage me to think differently, think radically and take opportunities where they come. With your role as the chair, your GP Fed, what does your GP Federation deliver? So we've got about 23 contracts. So when it started, we were just doing, in that day, the Prime Minister's Challenge Fund, so David Cameron's day, he set up the opportunity of working at scale across general practice delivering appointments. So that's where it started. At the time, I was the accountable officer of Cambridge and Peterborough CCG. So I was kind of involved because I'm interested in stuff, but I wasn't had to have a leadership role there. When I stood down as the chief executive for CCG, I then got more involved in the GP Federation. And over that time, the GP Federation has gone on to deliver a lot of contracts to do with things like virtual wards, working with ambulance trusts to kind of take people off their ambulance stack, people that are lower acuity, not heart attacks and strokes, but maybe a urine infection or something in an 80-year-old, which would take 15 hours to get to, getting to them in half an hour, getting antibiotics and stuff like that to kind of intercept that pathway and make care better. We do home visiting services. 
in Peterborough, often our district nursing services are, are stretched because it's, you know, it's such a challenging kind of population. So our federation do blood tests in people's homes. They also do chronic disease checks like diabetic checks. So say you've got people that can't come to a GP surgery for whatever reason, mental health, physical disability, we would go into their house to do it. We do contracts to do with eating disorders and the monitoring of people with eating disorders. We do contracts to do with severe enduring mental health and making sure that they are supported with health checks, alcohol support. There's 23 different contracts, but those are the kind of portfolios that it's basically, I guess, primary care plus primary care at scale or some things that normally community providers would do. I'm having lots of conversations recently and people use the term them and us. So when they say us, I think they mean general practice. And then when they use the term them, they mean PCN or GP fed, sometimes ICB. How do you navigate that? Because you're in a leadership position. Do you ever find yourself using us, them? I know it's we, that there are different roles and responsibilities. And you mentioned competition. In one hand, you said, we want to work collaboratively and actually want to reduce that competition because there's enough work. You can make the money work if you've got the relationship. But on the other hand, competition drives up innovation and can drive up quality. So how do you manage the us, them, we debate? I'll put my hand up to say that I think I use us and them as well. And I guess where I use us and them is probably cross-sector. So I don't use it probably within general practice and the general practice family. I probably use it much more because my burning passion is to get more resource out into the community to do stuff. And I believe general practice is a good way to do it. I would recognise what you're saying, though, wholeheartedly. And part of the reason I do the leadership roles that I do is that I want to break down those barriers. And I guess the most effective way, and I think where our paths of cross Tara and where, again, this kind of community of people in the primary care sector is because we're all trying to break down these barriers. We're trying to get people to think from a leadership perspective to say, not us and them, we're all we. And how do we start having conversations with each other to make things better? And I guess as a practical example, Given all of the troubles that general practice has and the strife and the, you know, all that kind of stuff, I think one way through it is to paint out a better future, paint out a better vision for general practice in the next two to five years to get people who think similarly. And like you asked me earlier, not foolishly, not that we're just mad and think that everything's going to be fine, <laughs> but what is the journey to positivity? How can we show the leaders that are struggling within practices or PCNs a brighter future? What are the kind of practical things that we can talk about doing that have helped us be positive about it and help influence them to do it? So in that way, as you said, when you're a family amongst your children or amongst your siblings, you want your family to be the best your family can be. And how do you therefore influence the children, the siblings or whatever, to think about life differently, to look at opportunities and to try stuff that you as an older sister, an older brother might have tried or a younger sister or a younger brother with a different energy. That's how I see it. I see that actually, like you, we need to get rid of the us and them from within general practice. It shouldn't be in the NHS at all. But we need to absolutely do everything we can to get rid of that and move it to, well, what are the positive things that any of us can do to make our lives better for ourselves, for our organisations and for the patients? And where you mentioned painting that future, some organisations do that really well. So even at THC, we had a, it was in COVID, we sat around kitchen table and we set out our vivid vision. And we were like, we don't know how we are going to do some of this stuff, but what do we want to do? What do I want to do? What do I want to release? And all of that stuff. 
And now we look at that document and it's like, we've done that, we've done that, we've done that, we've done that. I mean, that was three years ago. As you develop your organization and leadership skills, you know, like year one, you think, yep, I've cracked it. Then year two, you think, oh my God, I can't believe I said I cracked it in year one. Year two, I'm just learning. Year eight for me, I think I've not mastered strategy, but I understand what it means now to create a long-term strategic plan. But that's taken me a long time because I was very operational. What is your process for building a strategic plan, which is thinking, okay, well, in the next few years, we want to achieve X, Y, and Z, because some people, and there's no shame in this, you know, like are not great at it because there's just two head down. They're great at firefighting and they're not great at seeing beyond the horizon. I love this narrative, which is that I never feel like I've quite got it. I never <laughs> feel like I know 100% what I'm doing. Part of the reason why I take the different jobs that I do is to learn more. There's a selfish component to it. The selfish component is I want to learn more about the monarchy. I want to learn more about how that's entwined into society. And I want to think about how that could be harnessed to do good for our population. Why did I try and be the CCG accountable officer? It was because actually I wanted to learn about commissioning. I wanted to get into how is the NHS wired and things like that. Through each of these things that I do and I learn from, it changes how I view life. It changes how I view my job. It changes how I view general practice. And so I think we need to keep refreshing and keep doing. And I think kind of listening to your example, I think we did the same. We did the same as you. And so what we did is when we launched our integrated neighborhood, we got all the people from our locality together. And I don't mean the usual suspects at that time, GPs, nurses, but also charities, voluntary sector, you know, some of the big employers and stuff like that. We talked openly to say, where is the overlap? Where are the synergies? What do we want to achieve? And that radically changed my thinking. And I guess one way that it radically changed my thinking was, you know, Thistlemore, the organisation that I spend most of my time in, you know, before it was a doctor and nurse and healthcare assistant and reception and admin, that, you know, that was Thistlemore. Whereas now Thistlemore is all of that, plus loads of ARS stuff. I won't tell you how much I'm spending on my budget. Then also... <laughs> and everybody of, else's budget. <laughs> <laughs> loads of other people from the voluntary sector, from, you know, the council and things like that. It changed the way that I viewed what I was there to do who I would give access to my service and, and this kind of stuff that I do. I think the challenge is that now I feel a lot happier with my offering, but actually, where does that keep going? And if back to your question about my mum, she got an MBE. What am I going to do? This all got labelled in the 90s, the practice of the future. Okay, great. In the 90s, we were the practice of future. How are we the practice of future in the 2000s, the 2010s, the 2020s? How do we keep building on this momentum of wanting to change, to innovate and experiment? And I think probably listening to this conversation has made me feel like, let's do another refresh. Let's look at what we've achieved. And like you, loads of ticks there, some crosses, some yeah. things we tried and we failed. But what's the next three to five years going to look like? Yeah, we did that. Valentina pulled together like an annual review. And we were really clear to say, yes, we want to celebrate the stuff that we have done well, but not everything we did turned to gold. And not just to skirt over that, to learn like, why did we not? Sometimes it was us. Sometimes we made a mistake. We didn't plan properly. We didn't have the right team. We were too ambitious. We didn't have enough money. Like all of those things just to build on. In order to build a vision and execute on the vision, you need to be really clear on your values. Can you think of a time where something has tested one of your values and you've gone, do you know what, we're not going to do X? Over my time, I guess people might see all the leadership stuff that I do and go, 
and for example, say, Neil, you're a great leader, you, you know, all this kind of stuff. Definitely over the time, I've had feedback in all of the roles that I've done about certain behaviours. And actually, you know, so for example, being over challenging and things like that, or you know how in some meetings, you can almost predict what's going to happen in a meeting by the attendance list. So you almost know people are not really there to listen and to think about things. They're there to kind of almost state their siloed opinion of stuff. And actually, my own values don't resonate sometimes with the behaviours that I exhibit. And on occasion, I've had feedback about my behaviours. And when I check back against my own values and what I would like people to perceive, there's a discordance there. And of course, I can externalise that to say, well, that person's got something against me or no, I wasn't trying to do that. But actually, if people perceive things... And that's their perception. I don't think we can check, we can understand that that's the perception that someone has. And I think my leadership has evolved over time because I've always, whenever people have given me feedback like that, I've always wanted to work on myself. I've not kind of you know died in a ditch and started crying to say, oh, you know, it's all terrible. But I am quite self-reflective. You know, part of my personality is extroverted, but I've got kind of quite introverted thinking. And so actually, when I get feedback like that. I do want to think about it. And what I always want is that when I get feedback like that, I want the next time I get feedback or the next appraisal that I have for that feedback, not to have given the opportunity to get that feedback again. And so that's something that drives my leadership style is getting feedback from people, not allowing that to destabilize me so much that I give up on leadership, but thinking that actually I haven't cracked it. I'm still on a journey. I still want feedback. When things are not helpful and not productive, I want to work on that. When I asked that question, there's a lady called Meg that listens to this podcast. And I said to her, like, why do you listen to the podcast? And she was like, it's a fantastic leadership podcast. And I just think there are lots of people that listen to this podcast. It's nice to hear the story, but it's also nice to hear and understand people's thought processes. And there's no wrong or right. It's just everybody's experience around receiving feedback and knowing, like, what do you do with the feedback when it's negative? And then sometimes it depends on who's giving the feedback but actually if there is a theme it's like maybe I need to look at it feedback's a gift sometimes it's not a very nice gift (laughs) it's a balanced view and I think lots of people resonate with this the feedback is good it's how we grow you need other people to kind of give you some feedback if you're so self-assured and the feedback people give you just doesn't touch you ever I don't think that's great to give a, pra- a real practical example is in our system, you know, Cambridge and Peterborough, we've got lots of affluence, mainly around the Cambridge and South Cambridge. And we've got lots of challenge and deprivation, mainly around Peterborough, Wisbeach, Fens and things like that. And I guess what I'm always passionate about thinking about health inequalities, reducing them and innovations like that. And I guess an unhelpful way of labelling that was all of the challenges in the north of the county, all of the challenges around Peterborough. And I think what was happening was using a mantra like that, although I was passionate about it and it kind of ticked some of my core values, what that was taken to in the system was almost a negative because actually people were like, well, actually in Cambridge, there's a big homeless population, there's big challenges and things like that. I think almost kind of reflecting on that kind of stuff of, you know, actually when people go to the trouble of giving you feedback, which can be quite challenging giving people feedback. A lot of people don't like giving people feedback. But when people do, thinking actually they're not out there to cause me a problem or cause me difficulty. 
they're brave enough to ask for a conversation with you about something because from their lens, it's causing a problem. And it's either causing a problem specifically for them, or but maybe it's also causing a problem for yourself because actually by going with that kind of narrative, people are not listening to you anymore because actually they are seeing that that's a problem basically. Sometimes, have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're like, I am right, your feedback is this, and I take on board what you're saying, but I am right. And the person I've got in my mind is Partha Carr. Yes. Okay. (laughs) So Partha has been on the podcast before, currently at the time of recording, I don't know if he's going to still do it. He's a national speciality advisor, clinical lead for diabetes. I've obviously spoken to him. I've seen him online. He is resolute about certain things. And he is quite stand solid in that view. When other people around him are like, no, 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 no. He's like, this is what I think. Have you found yourself in situations in the course of your career where people are saying X, but you still firmly believe? When I look at my population, when I look at the evidence in my view, this is the right course. This is the plan. We take risks all the time and those risks are often based on what we think is the right thing to do or what I think is the right thing to do. So in that kind of stuff, absolutely. I think I would, I've got, I guess, 15 years experience now of being a GP in an inner city Peterborough. I've seen it grow from 8,000 patients when I started to 30,000. I've seen my team grow from 20 to 120. I guess with that kind of stuff, I would back myself. I try not to mean that in an arrogant way, or but I've got lived experience of devoting my time, my brain space to a population for a period of time. I've led a series of organisational change to achieve that happening. I have confidence in that. I think Partha is magnificent. You know, when I follow him on Twitter, I see him on LinkedIn, he's, he's doing amazing things. And I love the courage that he has in terms of standing up for what he believes in and things like that. My style is different. That's not to say my style is better and things like that. If I get personal feedback about myself, I think my null hypothesis is that actually I want to investigate that. That's my null hypothesis. I'm not saying I I don't know how Partha or anyone else deals with it, but my null hypothesis is I've got some feedback. What is the subject matter? What happened? What was my perspective on that? Let me ask a few other people uh, that I trust as well, see what their, their opinion was it, and let me make a plan for the future. That's how I process stuff. And I guess where I'm coming from, I guess maybe it's my upbringing, a bit of deference and stuff like that, you know, in, in, in my upbringing. But for me, that's, that's a healthy way of processing it because I think back to, I've had the opportunity to have loads of lovely leadership jobs. And I think partly that's because I keep working on myself and partly that as the NHS evolves, I keep evolving myself. The way that I do that is by taking these kind of things and using that to fuel personal growth. And I think back to the doom and gloom of the NHS, I think back to leadership, people can get doom and gloom about leadership, but actually it's still a wonderful opportunity, isn't it, to do a lot of good. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. 
all you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. So I've been having these conversations, had a few podcast recordings today, and what's been interesting is, for me, what connects me to you guys is the PCM. Hearing you speak around the opportunities, the primary care network, I'm making the assumption is like, it's a lever to help you achieve whatever your vision is. So you mentioned as the NHS evolves, you will naturally evolve. So when thinking about the primary care network, what is your view? Is it stopping you from making decisions or do you just think we've got the ARS budget? They've said it's going to continue because some of your staff are funded. You know, like you've got a second business where that workforce is really, really important. So if they did change their minds, you would think, oh, that wasn't necessarily part of the plan. So how do you view the primary care network Des, coming to an end? And when thinking about the future of your patients and what you want to achieve? So I am a fan of the primary care network agenda. You know, I think it's brought much needed resource into general practice and into the community. Looking at the pharmacy as a business, they are really struggling. You know, actually the sector has not got enough resource. So I think it's really interesting having these different lenses because actually when I look at it from a pharmacy lens and I look over the fence to general practice and primary care networks and things like that, I go, wow, there's so much opportunity there. And so I guess, again, the reason why I take these leadership roles is to kind of almost break down these barriers. And so for us, I see the primary care network is an enabling thing that allows us, you know, allows us to make a lot of positive changes and brings workforce, which is the key to the NHS. You know, it's the people. It's not the buildings. It's not the organisations you run. It's the people within it that drives the NHS. Now, primary care networks potentially coming to an end, I think, is a destabilizing things. So I think actually we've had five years of knowing primary care networks are there, growing primary care networks. And I'm really keen to learn from key people in the country, Amanda Doyle, Claire Fuller, NHS England, where do they think it's going? I understand the other lens. You know, I'm no longer in the the local LMC, but I've been part of the LMC in our area, Cambridge and Peterborough, for 12 years. And I understand the tension that there often is about core funding you know, just in the GMS budget to run a service versus this other funding that you have to agree with others and you have to kind of make sure you're doing things, you know, in in a certain way. So I I do understand there's a tension there, but I think we shouldn't lose sight of, like you're saying, there's a huge amount of resource in PCNs. What would be terribly destabilizing is if we thought that resource is no longer going to be focused on the kind of things it's doing now, that is potentially, you know, disastrous for general practice and community-based care. So therefore, you know, I would like a signal that stuff is continuing. In a way, if it was all in core, it would make it easier. It would make it easier to navigate and things like that. You know, but I could see a downside to it, which is that actually the PCN for me is three practices working really closely together. It's confidence with the ICB to do business with three practices rather, you know, as a collective and actually bring investment into those three practices through a joint route. I've got no problem with that. Neil, I could just speak to you all day. Thank you so, so much. And I look forward to seeing you in Birmingham. Perfect. Take care. Thank 
you so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review. I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.